This episode is sponsored by ContentFind, a premium video editing and content repurposing service for busy content creators, influencers, brands, podcasters, YouTubers, and marketers. ContentFi provides unlimited end-to-end editing and repurposing services to help you get your video and audio content edited and repurposed quickly, easily, and reliably. Join other busy content creators, founders, brands, and marketers who now spend even more time creating while they take care of the rest. You no longer need to worry about spending hours editing anymore. Just create content, build your audience, and grow your business. If you're a content creator looking to save time and money, or looking to outsource your content marketing team, get your first free video edited now at contentfi.co. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast, or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS dash podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about using inorganic growth and bolt-on acquisitions as a strategic expansion strategy. Today, we have our guest, Steve Levely, joining us. Steve is the CEO of Acru, which provides marketing, payment, and point-of-sale solutions for merchants of all size. Acru's self-serve, data-driven, cloud-based marketing platform helps merchants in-store and online process and manage loyalty, gift card, and promotional transactions at the point of sale in order to attract, engage, and grow their customers while increasing the revenues and margins. As the CEO of Acru, Steve leads the company's corporate strategy, where he transitions into the role after previously serving as the company's executive vice president of sales and marketing. He brings over 15 years of experience in successful sales leadership and business development from various small and large organizations. So welcome, Steve. Super excited to have you on SAS District Show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Akil. So talking about your background, kind of just running in with that, uh, what was your journey up until joining Acru and eventually transitioning into that CEO role uh, as priorly as the EVP of sales and marketing? My whole background has been sales and marketing. Like everything leading up to Acru was all sales and marketing driven, whether it was for a big company or a small company, it was all sales and marketing focused. Um, and then even that's why when I joined the crew, that was the initial you know, entry point, was leading sales the first year to help commercialize the business and grow it. In the second year after the first CEO moved on, I then took over marketing as well. Um, and it was in that third year, um, the second CEO, after we ran out of capital, um, decided to step down, join our board. And then I was kind of tapping the shoulder to step in and see if, uh, if I had interest in either selling or salvaging the business. So it really came with a lot of commercialization experience um, where, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, public market um, tech company CEOs or product people. I'm, I'm a commercialization person. I'm on the other side of the fence where it's, I, I have expertise in commercialization, uh, not, not specifically on building technology. Right. So they, at that point, you were, you know, leading up the sales division and, and the marketing piece. And, you know, as the CEO stepped over uh, or stepped away, you know, they felt you were, you were the right fit to kind of take over that role. Were there kind of some immediate changes that you felt that were lacking at that point that, you know, run, they ran out of capital um, or, you know, they were deciding what to do? Was there something you saw at that point, like, we need to do this to, that was so clear that, to make that transition? Yeah, there were two, like, super obvious things to me. Um, the first was around our commercial model, right? Our direct sales model going out to the market. It was just so expensive. We were spending so much money on direct sales, going out there, knocking on doors to try to win deals. 
because to win the deals, we not only had to sell our own product, we had to get them to switch to partners of ours in the payment and point of sale world. So right. we'd have to get them to switch to our partner first, then to us second. It was kind of backwards, right? So it became this very expensive model that we realized, let's turn this into a channel model. Let's pay a commission to our partners that sell payment and point of sale, and they'll, have, they'll refer their clients to us. So that was the big thing that we learned, and that was one of the first changes that I made. The second was around realizing how fragmented the market was. So many companies out there that did what we do, um, so there's a, a consolidation play there, but also when we talked to our clients, they all wanted to have vendor consolidation. They didn't want to deal with a payment guy, a marketing guy, a point of sale guy. They didn't want to deal with all the different pieces. They wanted to have one contact for all of it. So we thought, huh, so there's consolidation of vendor play here and a consolidation of, of, of companies uh, as well. So we immediately pivoted to a channel sales model into an acquisition mm-hmm. growth strategy, which plays to my strengths, sales and marketing um, with a bit of financial spin on the back end, um, while the rest of the team focused on just sort of organically implementing it and building a, a product that could support all that. Super cool. Um, and then on the product side specifically, so you made that shift. Um, so you added both payment and point of sale solution to make it more of a, a whole solution. Um, what's really the problem or the strategy around that you're looking to solve in the market by rolling out this addition? Do you have a, you know, was there something so clear that you know that this would, you know, that there's a, a desire a need for this? Well, I mentioned the first bit of clarity that came, right? We're like, yeah. we can't just sell this without referring to our point of sale and payment partners. And for eight years, we relied on that partnership channel. We relied on the, the point of sale guys, the payment guys referring their clients to us. But over time, those companies are now selling software. They're now competing mm-hmm. in the marketing space, both point of okay. sale and payment. So we can keep hoping that we get more relationships like them, or we can just do it ourselves. So we wanted to remove the dependency on those partnerships because those companies have now gotten into marketing like we were doing before and right. payment and point of sale and vice versa. So those industries were also colliding. So instead of you know just trying to be a purist and, and playing in position, we realized that to really grow and to thrive, we have to get into those positions as well. So we expanded into payment and we first did it through an acquisition. Um, and, and so, cause we thought it was smarter to kind of thrust ourselves into an acquisition and learn it that way through customers and team. And we did the same thing on the point of sale side. Let's, let's not build the tech from scratch. Let's buy the tech and enhance it. So we did a, 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 a buy first, um, stretching of the, of the business. We thought it made sense for us. Super cool. Uh, so before we get to the buy side, there's a lot of questions there, but I, w- I want to just understand your, your product, maybe, uh, you know, thinking and framework of how you approach it. Um, what, what's your decision-making process around, you know, how you decide on what services or maybe an acquisition, looking at the product itself, how do you m- measure the success of each addition? And then maybe do you have a, a framework of how you eliminate and rank them? Well, so on the product side of it, again, we have, we have kind of one service, two products now, right? Um, so right. we always had a marketing product that we kept evolving over the years. And we would do, again, we'd either build organically or double down inorganically, different features of the marketing component, whether it was a marketing hub or what have you. But some rules of thumbs that we have is we don't want to be a custom product. We don't want to have mm-hmm. custom solutions for 30 customers. And a lot of the acquisitions we've done has been because of that. They built custom solutions for their clients. We want to build a single backend with custom front ends to it. So it's a single scalable backend that can be customized by vertical or by client type. So that was a really critical thing. And knowing that every time we build a feature, every time we do an advancement, it can never be for one client. If A, it can't be used by multiple clients, we don't do it. And B, if multiple clients wouldn't actually pay for it, now we may not charge them for it, but if they wouldn't actually pay extra for it, we don't do it either. So it has to work for many and many would even pay more for it. Again, we may not charge them more for it because the SaaS model is all about paying a little bit of money for over a long period of time. But if they would actually invest further and it would work for many of them, then we do it. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so shifting into kind of the, the acquisition play. So I think uh, you guys made three acquisitions last year. 
yeah. um, can you share a little bit of the story about that? And you know, what, are the, what is the strategy around them? You know, what's the inorganic growth you mentioned? And what are the size of those deals, if you can talk about them? So again, going into last year, we were a marketing company, right? Full stop, full service marketing, gift, loyalty, promotions, email marketing, all that good stuff, right? So what we were missing is we, we had kind of two services we offered from a marketing perspective, though. We sold email marketing as a service and we sell di direct mail marketing as a service as well, right? Um, the email marketing piece, we always had an interest in because we could actually get it into the tech. How do we take an email marketing service that we use MailChimp or Dalek Insight for and actually embed it into our technology? When we bought win-win marketing, super small deal, like a hundred grand, it was a really small deal, but they had that. They had this integrated marketing hub that actually allows them to do digital marketing through it. So we were planning to go there anyhow. And we thought, hmm, the valuation was good, right? That made sense to us, right? We paid, you know, I think one and a half or two times revenue. So it made sense for us. There was no carrying costs. It was a hundred percent contribution to the bottom line of the business. So there was no HR cost coming in. So a fast return on investment, but we didn't instantly have clients we could learn from about this marketing hub and this integrated marketing piece so we can move away from manually providing a marketing service to having the technology provide that marketing for us. So that's why we did that deal. So it was to help enhance our marketing products. And then we want to get into payments. So we bought a payments company and it was with one of our current partners, Global Payments. It was one of their resellers. So we instantly got them as a client. But now all of a sudden, the rates we had before buying them got better. So because you get like a commission deal. Mm -hmm. By buying a portfolio and processing more, your commission rate's higher. So we instantly started making more money through our customers by having more revenues come in. So as we buy more payments companies, we actually start making money on the other customers because we actually make a higher commission each time. So there's an economy of scale that happened there. And then the third was point of sale. We did it at the very end of the year. But like I was mentioning earlier, we wanted to get into point of sale, not just because we saw it as a, as a good complementary piece because from a defeating the competition standpoint, but it's a necessary operational item. It's why you see companies like Shopify and Lightspeed and PAR doing so well. It's a critical component to a business. Right? There are choices out there for sure, but it's a critical piece. Just like payment is a critical piece. A lot of businesses looked at marketing as somewhat of a, a nice to have as opposed to a need to have, even though there's tons of value in it. But we really wanted to bolt on these need to have products. So we wanted to do an acquisition in all three of our future verticals um, and solutions. Nice. So more than we've ever done. <laughs> um, but you know, with COVID, that's one of the benefits we had of COVID. Our, our M&A funnel doubled last year. Um, wow. um, yes, the organic business had a bit of attrition and it was a fight, but inorganically, holy cow, it doubled the opportunities that we're mm -hmm. working on. Love it. Um, yeah. So your, your main focus is looking at what feature kind of uh, fits well with kind of your ecosystem. And then obviously also taking up the revenue um, and then, you know, the commission side as well. So it's kind of a three piece of. Uh, and over time, hopefully there's some talent too. Like as much as, you know, most M&A companies that are focused in that direction, they'll tell you it's all about, you know, you, not, you normalize and you operationalize, you take a million dollars of cost down to half a million dollars of cost. And that's the magic. And there is truth to that for sure. But hopefully that half a million dollars of cost comes with some smart talent some capable talent to come in and join and sort of Frankenstein into our team as well. So there is a talent play that ends up happening there as well. That's true. And what's kind of your plans for this year? Is that, is that the same acquisition pace you're looking to do this year or maintain in the future? Or, you know, is there some certain products you're looking for? Yeah, I think never mind this year, but for the next two years, I don't mm -hmm. think you'll see us go to like a fourth solution, right? Mm -hmm. uh, at this mm -hmm. stage, we already have three full solutions. We have a marketing solution, we have a payment solution and a point of sale solution. We're going to double down in, in, in one of or all three of those areas. Um, over the next 24 months before we even consider a fourth uh, solution set. We believe we have enough and there's, these are full, we could have just a payments business and be successful and do really well there. We could have just a marketing business be successful and do well there, just a POS business. We've already got a lot on our plate that doubling down there is more than sufficient for us. So that's our focus for the next at least 24 months. It's just doubling down on those three areas. 
Got it. So looking for more bolt-on acquisitions in those specific uh, yeah. uh, features. Organically developing. So obviously there's no organic mm -hmm. product for business. There's nothing to do organically there than maybe a new partner to resell. Right. Um, right. But organically, it's more features. Taking more of the services we do manually into the tech on the marketing side, right? On the mm -hmm. POS side, it's having more verticals. Our first vertical was golf courses because we saw it as a safe vertical with things like COVID. We thought, let's get really niche and go after mm -hmm. golf course sales. Wow. Uh, but a golf course has a restaurant. And we get into restaurant point of sales next. They have a pro shop. It's a retailer. So you can start to see a path to other verticals in time, but we saw it as a, a good uh, niche entry point into that whole point of sale ecosystem. Super cool. Can you share any uh, maybe learnings or failures that you maybe had from previous deals? Because I know there's some people in the space who are maybe looking to do some acquisitions just like we are. Uh, I was looking to learn on, you know, anything that went, went right and anything that went wrong in those deals. Oh yeah, there's lots of learnings. And it, so we've done 10 now. So we've done 10 deals so far. And, and I, I always say my worst was the first, my last was the best. It's always like, cause you're learning, right? It's a whole iterative learning thing. And that's why it's, it's trial and error. And, and again, what worked for me may not work exactly for you guys, but I can tell you there's been some key rules that we've learned over the years. So a mistake that we made early on was we did one deal where we didn't buy the tech. We did one acquisition mm -hmm. where we bought the customers and the team, but we didn't buy the tech. Well, why we buy the tech? We already have our own tech. Well, yeah, but that tech kept evolving. And we had a license agreement with those, those customers and to move them. So what we do is when we buy a company, we create product parity. So we go to the customer and say, hey, you're using these 10 features. Do you need all 10 of them? Do you only need five? Great, a crew already has three of the five. We'll build these two, we'll move you over. But yeah. that works in principle if you own the technology because you're not advancing it further. But when you don't own the tech and the tech is kind of this moving target, you're chasing your tail. So it took us twice as long to normalize that deal because of us not buying the tech. We just bought the team and the customers. So right. important in a, in a technology company that you buy the tech as well. So that's one key learning. Uh, the second was around um, the tail, right? And, um, and knowing that effectively and efficiently normalizing these businesses has such an important impact. And if you read my investor deck, I talk about our goal is 12 months. If we can't normalize a business within 12 months or believe we can, we shouldn't do the deals. If you mm -hmm. can't get them integrated into your business, normalize, like at least operating at what you thought it was going to operate at, never mind the growth, just what you thought you bought within 12 yeah. months, you probably shouldn't do it. So we ask ourselves that every single time. And it even actually helps dictate how frequently we do deals. So when we did a deal in April of last year, it was super small. So we thought, all right, within 12 months, we'll get this done. So when we bought the payment deal, we're like, won't be too disruptive. We could do that one within 12 months too. The second you get to a point where you're like, we couldn't do it in 12 months, you shouldn't. Because anytime it took us longer than 12 months, it hurt the business, hurt the organic business, hurt other inorganic business. Um, so that 12-month normalization was another critical lesson for us that we, we hold true to. Um, mm. And then the third rule um, is around ownership. We don't ever keep the owners uh, of the businesses. Mm. We're not like a Constellation software or other consolidators that like just own the companies and they right. provide services and they operate them. We're the operator. So if we're the operator, if we're in there running the business, operating the business, um, having the owners there that had different opinions, the founders, is tricky. They may come in for 90 days, maybe even a year or two, but really it's not a long-term relationship. Um, mm. and, and so it was critical for us to kind of, on the front end, those owners realize that, that there's for sure a transition that needs to happen, but there is an end because maybe our theories about business and the direction we're taking are different than theirs. You don't have too many cooks in the kitchen. Love the number two and number three players, but the founders, we never keep. Makes sense. We, we kind of do the same thing. Are, do you guys generally have like a manager... Uh, on your team who's kind of overseeing that transition or do you have kind of like a VP of you know, tech who's or CTO that does that? No, I mean, so we're a 40 person company today, 35 to 40 person company today, right? Mm. Um, 
and I, I act as that M and A lead for us, right? Mm. And and so this just shows what a small company is and wearing three hats. I'm driving the M and A for us, both from a, a a due diligence perspective. Now I I pull in the team, and we go through a process where, like, after the deal is done, our you know our finance team is the first people to come in, and for 90 days they've got to get all the financial stuff normalized, get customers paying us collections, accounts receivable, like contracts, all that stuff, right? Then there's an operational transition for the next 90 days that steps in and they go through that. Then we introduce marketing and sales and then last is product. So, so you kind of go through this journey. So each team does it, but I watch each group through that in time. I'm sure we'll have a corporate development person that'll do it instead. That'll just not only get the, that'll help negotiate the deals and get them into the business, but they'll have oversight over finance operations, sales and marketing and product. Absolutely. Uh, what would you say, you know, top of the, the funnel when you're looking at deals, I'm sure you got approached quite a bit. What are some red flags that you look at and what are you looking to avoid in an acquisition? I don't like seeing debt. Mm-hmm. I don't like seeing businesses that have debt in the books already. Um, and uh, I mean, even though we have a bit of debt in a crew that we took on for acquisition purposes, um, for a lot of these businesses, they haven't grown by acquisition. They've grown organically. So if their debt ratios are high, like debt to earnings ratios, I get nervous right? Anything more than a four to one uh, debt to earnings ratio is a flag. So if mm. they can't pay back their debt based on four years of their earnings, there's a flag there. So a bit of debt's okay, but if they're breaking that four to one uh, ratio of earnings, like their earnings, not our earnings after we normalize them, their earnings, there's like, ooh. So that means they've already taken on a bit too much debt. So that's mm. that's a big flag that we see. Um, then, obvi- then it's the other obvious metrics, right? It's, are they even growing? Where mm. are they getting attrition and why? right? You know, where are they losing customers? Where are they winning customers, right? And if, if they are winning, is that repeatable, right? If they are losing, is that probably repeatable too? So it's understanding the winning and losing in the middle of that as well as the other kind of major stakes that we kind of look at for each piece. Super cool. So the debt itself, I mean, are you typically absorbing that? Are you buying it out? Are you... Uh, yeah, like, well, just like we always want to clear it right away. I mean, okay. most of our deals, like it's just, I, it's only now we're looking at deals that even have debt in them. Up until mm-hmm. now, none of them had debt. Right. We did, right. we did all asset purchases. So we just said, even if you've got debt, we're doing an asset purchase. So your debt's on you, you take it out of your consideration. Right. So exactly. they all had different varying levels of debt, but we did asset purchases. Our last year was the first time we did a share purchase. And we have other share purchases in front of us. When you do a share purchase, that's the other caution flag. You're taking on skeletons and closets. You're taking yes. on old debts and all that good stuff. So you got to be careful. If anything, you should be discounting your deals a little bit uh, if you're going to mm-hmm. do share purchases because there is that risk. The sellers love it, right? Because they get to pay a little bit less taxes for oh, them. There. And they get this, yeah. There's the capital gains exemption that they get. You get to wash your yeah. hands. Great for the seller, not the best for the buyer. Ideally, if as a buyer, if you do an asset acquisition, it's 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 always the, prefer- the preference. And of our 10 deals, nine were asset. Only one was uh, share purchase. Right. And are you guys typically doing all cash? Or I know you mentioned a little bit, you you roll up a little of uh, equity and give them stock options, I think, which, which a lot of sellers maybe think about when they're they're selling is, um, you know, how much, how much shares am I getting of the, of the new business? And, you know, how does my, my long-term incentive play with the, with the strategic acquirer? Yeah. Like early on shares are what we have. Right. And, and the story was, Hey, if we combined our business, your revenues were 20% of the total business. Why don't you take 20% of the equity, 20% in the crew is better than hundred percent of you. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how deals got done. Um, but as time's gone on, we don't want to do that anymore. We don't want to keep, you know, diluting our shareholders with that whole model. Right. Cause we're past, that inflection point of growth and, 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 and profits and all that good stuff. But, but you do like a bit of equity in there and, and we've been paying in cash. So how do you inject a bit of equity without dilution, right? And so do you do just 10 or 20% of it being equity? So they have a little bit of skin in the game, but there's also upside to them. If the stock performs, 
it's a great win for them, right? We have deals right. that one of our largest stock deals, the deal was done at five cents. He's still sitting on half of his shares. They're up 600%. Mm. He's pretty happy. And he's ha he's going to keep sitting on it for another few years. He's like, ah, I'm going to keep sitting on this and letting it ride. So for him, it was a great deal for him, right? So there's a value that maybe convertible debt is something in the future where they have a guarantee to cash or they can convert it to equity, right? Um, so I do like the idea of some type of equity twist in there mm. in some component. So there's a little bit of extra commitment to the business. Um, but also if we can just clear a deal in cash, that's not a bad thing either. Yeah. And I think one interesting point that uh, I think a lot of uh, sellers are always interested in is how strategics look at it. If they're looking at it from your shoes, if they're sitting in your perspective and how they're looking at it, if you're a publicly traded companies, you guys are currently trading, I think we talked before the show, at about 5x uh, revenue. Now, mm -hmm. how, how does that affect? So if I'm looking at a business and I'm looking to pay, let's call it two and a half x the revenue. Now you're absorbing that revenue that you're paying basically half the, the valuation of what you're worth today. How do, how do you look at that in terms of how that affects your valuation and how, should, uh, how can you explain that to, to make it make sense for them? Yeah. So at a high level, I mean, we're in the public markets, mind you, right? So, right. so we're a public business. We're seeing a four to five multiple right now, um, which you see, right? You see 10 times multiples in the public markets, right? Because of growth projectiles, the industry you're in strategically, you know, you have a good mode around your business, all that good stuff. Um, so it's not uncommon to see even our current valuation, if not much more, than what we have, right? Um, but in the private world, um, one, we don't want to be buying more than we're trading for. But secondly, you want to buy what you can have recouped pretty quickly. So we've been paying pretty much two times revenue. Two and a half was the most we've ever paid because we can only really rip out half the costs. We don't want to take more than five years to pay back our investment. So obviously there's growth and you're expecting there's a growth business there too, but we don't want to be taking five or 10 years to, to get a payback right? There's intrinsic value, but that's why you're only seeing the two to two and a half times. So even if we were trading at two times, even if we're trading at 10 times, I don't think it's always wise to be paying more than that two to three times anyways. Um, it's got to be super strategic for you to pay more than that because just the payback, even if we were trading at 30 times revenue right now, it would mean that I'd be saying, yeah, we should do pay 20 times. That, that I just feel differently that, that the fair value is that two to three times in the private markets because of what we have to do. We see a premium in the public markets because of scale, investor awareness, and the direction of the company, access to capital. You have way more means than the private company, way more means. So that's why you get the appreciation in the markets. Yeah, absolutely agree. And that's kind of the similar valuation of what we're paying at Horizon. And um, I think up until you get to that 5 million kind of ARR mark, I don't think you can you know, ask for a lot more until, you know. Well, that's the other thing too. So our yeah. sweet spot's less than $5 million annual businesses, so smaller than we are. No right. one's really buying down there and you're certainly not seeing big multiples down there, right? That's All right. the big yeah. multiples are the, you know, your, your $100 million plus companies, like your, your mid to large cap companies where you see the big, big multiples, right? For the small micro cap, nano cap kind of business, size business, um, you're not seeing the big multiples there either. So there's not a lot of buyers, but there is lots of sellers, right? There's a right. supply and demand thing going on there. Um, not a lot of guys, I guess, that'll buy a business that does $100,000 of revenue, right? Or a million dollars of revenue, right? But we have done it and, and do do them. Mm -hmm. In terms of that, that kind of strategy, in terms of your growth strategy, we talk about you know, organic versus inorganic growth. Uh, you know, a lot of your focus has been in, on the inorganic side, which is the, the acquisition plays. How do you kind of make that balance in decision making of, you know, why this is the best strategy for Acru versus, you know, uh, just focusing on, on one or the other? So there's two things that, to answer that. So the first is that organically, it's been stunted because you're so much focused on inorganic. 
if your whole business, mm-hmm. if at Horizon you're so focused on inorganic, it's gonna be hard to really drive your organic business, right? Because you're normalizing, right. you're negotiating deals, you're creating awareness, like there's a lot of work there. And when you're small, you only have so many staff, you can only do one thing really well. It's hard to do two things really well. As right. you get bigger, you can kind of divide and conquer a little bit, right? And that's kind of where we're getting to. We're getting to a, a critical mass where you can divide and conquer a little bit. But on the organic side, what you gotta get really good at is the cross-sell upsell. If you're a business like ours that's buying complementary offerings or competitive offerings, and primarily on the complementary side, you've got to be really good at cross-sell upsell. Because yes, you buy a business at two or three times revenue, and so you can maintain it, maybe grow it. But where your really big intrinsic value comes is if you can actually double that. Take that $100 a month guy to two or $300 a month um, because you can cross-sell products and services. So suddenly there's three times the value and the payback is so fast. So, so when you're, when you're acquiring the complimentary, for me, I just believe it strongly and you've got to get really strong and really good at the cross sell upsell. And that's a path to huge returns for, for you and your business. hundred percent. Yeah. I love that strategy. Um, and then, you know, so that's a good strategy that's, that's worked for you. Can you share any growth strategies that maybe you've tested and ran that hasn't worked as well, or, or maybe go, you know, failed for Acru? Yeah. So I don't mind storytelling. So one of the acquisitions we did, we bought, um, and it ties to, it's funny, everything, you, all the stories tie to both, unfortunately, but we bought a, an automotive business called Dealer Rewards years ago. And we we're excited about Dealer Rewards, um, not because we got some dealer customers and automotive that we have some specialization in, but they sold a lot of marketing services, which was a lot of like email and direct mail marketing. We're like, oh, well, this is great. Email and direct mail marketing, it's the services component, is a great complement to our product. You know, product and services, they kind of go well together. But what we learned over time was the email marketing was great for us because over time, we can integrate into our technology, right? It can become a part of our product. So even if we sold less of it, it becomes a part of the product, right? And the opposite's happened. Digital marketing has grown because of the digital economy and what have you. But like fundamentally, even if it didn't, the support cost would be so low because we just have the tech do it. Mm. On the direct mail side, it is still very manual intensive and, and expensive. So never mind the market doing less and less direct mail because nobody wants to touch a mail piece or whatever. Um, but like, and the cost of it is high, better to do everything digital. So never mind that, but it's very operational heavy. But I can never make direct mail be a part of our tech. So for me, mm-hmm. tech first company, services second business, again, right. it depends what business is. If your service can't become your tech, don't offer that as a service. Mm-hmm. So if your service can't become your tech, I think that has to be another golden rule that you follow. If you're a tech company, if your service right. company doesn't Right? But if you're a tech company first, you don't want to take on services that can't become your tech because you're, right. you're supposed to be a tech company. So don't take on services that can never become your tech because it'll always just be a service and it could eventually become a drain. That's a really good point, people to consider. Um, obviously, you're growing you know, quite rapidly. You're doing a lot of you know, nice expansion strategies and acquisitions. What would, what, is, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges you're facing right now in order to continue to grow Acru? I always tell people I lose sleep over two things. Um, and, and like where I'm stressing all the time, it's all around the people, um, in a software business. Um, one of my colleagues here, she gave me a book called Peopleware and it talks mm-hmm. about, it's not about software, it's about people. Like your people is the business, 100%. right? Software is what gets created. The people are the business. So I really sweat the people, getting the people right, empowering them to make decisions for the business, right? So I don't have to make every decision for us, right? You know, hiring people that are capable, they can be autonomous. They not only have, you know, ability, but they have adaptability because you're constantly trying to adapt to this business and this industry that's constantly moving. So you got to get the people right. Um, and the second for me is about speed. You've mm-hmm. got to, everything you do, speed has to be like your, your North star as a company, like a, a fast, good decision is better than a slow, perfect decision in my opinion. Right? So let's make a lot of fast, good decisions. Right? And, and I think we're better off. 
and, and let's find a path to speed. And if we get faster at things, because the industry is faster, right? Life's short. In general, you want to move quickly anyhow. So my North Star is get people right, get the speed right, you get everything right. Love it. Speed over perfection. I love that model. Yeah. Steve, what's uh, one advice you wish you had known would tell your 25-year-old self? I don't know how old you are, but I don't know if it's that, that same advice you just said, but yeah. what would you tell yourself then? I'm 43, right? So I'm okay. 43 years old. So at 25, it was about 18 years ago. Um, you know, it's probably two bits of advice. Um, the first would have been, I'm going to learn more, way more in the next few years than I have the last few years, right? Because at 25, I did, thought, I did think I knew everything right? I was leading a sales organization. I thought I had all the answers, looked at ownership, like they didn't know what they were talking about. I wish back then I, I could just tell myself, you're going to learn way more in the future than you ever thought possible. Um, so that's the first bit of advice because I, th- I thought I knew everything, right? You know, sales leader, have all the answers. I know everything, but there's way more knowledge in front of you is the first, um, the first thing. The second is slowing down to speed up, right? I think like I had to take some humble pie, right? Even when I joined a crew, I was trying, but the longer stories, I was actually trying to do my own startup. I went to a VC, was trying to bootstrap my own accrue back then. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to find it myself. And at the time, I couldn't get it to come together. I had kind of investors, had a theory about the business, was trying to get tech people together. But it was actually a friend of mine that said to me, why don't you join these guys instead? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're not going to be the CEO. You won't even be the CTO or even the, v- the EVP. Be their sales leader. And you'll learn from them. You know, and, and, and worst case scenario, you'll learn and leverage those learnings. Best case scenario you end up being the star there and you're going to run the show two years later. And that's right. what happened. So literally, because I, I bit a bit of a humble pie to learn more, to further educate myself, um, as opposed to thinking I had all the answers and, and had it all figured out, I was able to kind of like take a step back and it, it put me in a much better position than when I did take over. Um, I was much more ready for it. At my first CEO job, if I would have done it two years earlier, I would have failed miserably. But I had two years to learn both through the successes and failures of my predecessors. And that's brilliant. And I even had the extra benefit that, that the, the predecessor who I stepped forward into, like the CEO before me, um, Eamon, he treated me like a partner in the middle of it all. He didn't just sort of treat me as a sales lead. He actually treated me like a partner. So I, I still tell people to this day that I credit a lot of the success that a crew has had to him because he treated me like a partner and a peer through the whole time that I was with him. And it helped set me up for success. Whereas if I jumped in thinking I knew everything, I would have struggled and failed. So, so I, I know it's a long answer to your short question, but, that, but that's kind of the learnings and, and what I would have told myself back when I was 25. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And there's more learnings in front of you. Love it. No, that's fantastic advice. And, and that kind of ties into my next question. Who or what would you say are the best three re- best uh, resources, whether it's books, people, it could be mentors, people you follow, influencers, you mentioned one, uh, who you'd say have been instrumental to your success over the last couple of years? Yeah, like, so again, I, I mentioned uh, Eamon as a name. Um, so hopefully he maybe watches this podcast one day. But, um, but at the same time, there's been people like that in my career. There's been individuals that have treated me as a peer and as an equal. And, and it's finding those people in your life. Like in business, it's rare to find that, right? Because usually the hierarchy is not built that way. So putting sure. yourself in business situations where you, regardless of title, you're treated as peer. So I've had that a couple times in my career, even previously, even in like sales leadership roles where the director or VP above me treated me like a peer, even though there was hierarchy. So, I, nice. so it's finding those situations and, and learning from it. Um, so that's been one recipe. Um, but, but the other for me, you know, I do read a fair bit, um, you know, and, um, but it's all very self-help business related stuff. Okay. I should probably read other stuff to get my mind distracted, <laughs> but I feel like you can't stop learning. Right. I, I feel like I have to be a consummate student, a student to business and a student to life. And if you can't get those learnings from people, pick up a book, 
right? Watch a movie. I take notes when I watch documentaries. I'm weird like that because I'm learning, right? I just, I'm in this constant quest for learning. Um, but the last is that I've been lucky through this whole acquisition thing where I've been able to meet tons of founders. You know, we've mm-hmm. done 10 deals. We've done, we had 10 that didn't happen. I've got 20 more companies I'm talking to now. That's like 40 different owners of businesses that I'm able to talk to about what worked, what you do well, what didn't you do well. So I've had a lot of opportunity to kind of get exposed to that and, and, and learn from their, again, successes and, and some of their failures. So that's really helped me. So it's putting yourself in environments with like-minded people that have had similar challenges before you uh, that can have those clear, honest discussions with you in return. And that's what's worked for me. Do you have any favorite books? There's always always more to learn. Uh, Do you have any favorite books maybe recently that you've read? Maybe in the last couple months? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Here's one. The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Love it. Yeah, you know the book? Yeah, yeah. It's a great book, right? Because it it almost was eerie reading it. And the reason why that comes to mind is because I just gave it to our product lead being like, this is our story. Like, so read The Hard Mm -hmm. Thing About Hard Things. And it kind of, there's certain books that like, it resonates with you. Just like a movie. You know, mm-hmm. I like, I like, um, real, like movies based on a real life. Cause I can sort of see myself being that person. Um, yeah. but there's, there's certain books that speak to me about our business and yeah, the hard thing about hard right. things is, yeah, it's a great book. Uh, Steve, what does success mean to, to you today? Whether that's personally, financially, business life, there's no right answer. Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, it was, you know, a crew was a challenge for me. I wanted to lead a business, right? I, I, I wanted to be a CEO of a business one day and now I've got that opportunity and the public thing just kind of happened by circumstance. Right. So I, I wanted to be successful here um, where like people that are in my business um, see a path to success, they're developing and growing. And I had that environment that I discussed, pure like mm-hmm. learning, growing. I really hope that like people walk away from this experience feeling like, holy cow, they're a better professional by being a part of the crew experience, right? That I've paid that for because I've received it coming in, right? So that's the first bit of success. The second is that the different dynamic for me is it's not like I bootstrapped a, a crew. There's been other mm-hmm. people that have been bootstrapping this and funding this. So I feel really obligated to get them a return on their investment. Like I really, every shareholder, I know it sounds corny, but I care about every dollar that goes in. I, I, I think about it, making sure that they actually see a return. So it's really important to me that they see a return because they've put an investment into us and, and I haven't convinced them all to, like people buying the open market, I don't even meet these people, right? And they may hear a podcast like this and buy equity, but that is a weight that I carry that I want success for them. But the last for me is that like, um, I want to get to a personal point where... Um, both half financial um, and half just, you know, you know satisfaction-wise, where I feel like I walk away and rinse and repeat, right? Mm. So I can walk away financially and I don't need to have the big paycheck next, right? Where I could roll the dice and whatever, but I'm actually capable of rinsing and repeating again, doing this all over mm. again, regardless of how the money works out, but I'm confident I could rinse and repeat and, and financially not have to worry about the money in the middle of all that. So that's kind of like the pieces for me. Right being able to repeat the success again. Yeah, I've, I've heard that before. Very yeah. cool. Uh, Steve, this, this has been great. I really pre- like this conversation. What are your future plans for Acru? What are, you know, any other expansion or solutions coming in the future? Uh, and where can our audience get in touch with you to learn more about you? Yeah, I think, you know, Accru, the whole name Accru is about accruing companies and accruing, you know, customers and, and you know, accruing offerings. So you're going to see this constant accumulation of, of business, right? Um, so that's what the business is doing. Um, at some stage, will we be the accrued versus accruing? I don't know, right? At some stage, are we the one that gets accrued versus us doing the one accruing? Um, that's in front of us. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think, you know, follow our journey. You know, go to our website. I, I update uh, an investor deck every quarter. Um, I, I We're starting to actually 
post these live videos as an investor live thing. So you can actually see the most recent interview that I did on the website. So that's a great place to go. So when you go to investors, you'll see these things on there now. So you can start to follow and understand the business. And then obviously we put lots of press releases out. Um, but, uh, and then even in those press releases, you'll see my content information. So if you want to email me or the company, it's all there. Okay. Awesome. We'll, we'll add those links to our show notes. So if anybody's listening, uh, feel, please check it out. Sounds good. Cool. Thank you so much, Steve. This has been great. Highly appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SaaS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.